Wow. Thank you for the love. I appreciate that. Can we give it up for Denise, our pastor? Love you guys. Appreciate you. Um, good afternoon, everybody. How you guys feeling today? All right. Good, 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 good. <laughs> love the energy. I love it. Um, yes, I, I am uh, Donald here. I've been serving here for some time. And I'm just really grateful for the space today, truly. Um, we have a, uh, as Denise said, a special today, uh, Black History special today. Um, Pastor Chris asked me to share on the legacy and relationship of Jesus and Africans. And um, I was just extremely excited about that. I have to be honest. I, I felt, as I prepared, I felt a little strange, too. Because, and I had to dive into, okay, what's this strange feeling I feel? And I think it's because I'm just not used to being invited in diverse spaces to share about this, you know. Now, of course, talking about justice for years here, but I, I think I'm just, it's still new to me, and I'm still unfamiliar with being welcomed in a space to share about our history. I'm, I think I'm more used to resistance. I'm more used to criticism. I'm used to a fatigue around the story of black history and where I don't necessarily see fatigue in other past narratives. Um, but I think th those are some things that I had. To, I'm, I'm used to having the fight to say what I'm going to say today, uh, but I've been invited and so I just really love Pastor Christian, Pastor Denise, I really love you guys and thank you for this opportunity to share on something that I think is extremely important um, for all of us. And so uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for who you are. And um, Lord, you see all the things that we have brought into this space, all the burdens, uh, anxieties, um, hopes. Um, Lord, I just pray that, that we can leave them before your feet and Lord, watch you work. I pray that this message uh, meets us where we need, where we need to be met, Lord God. I thank you um, so very much and let your Holy Spirit guide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Start with scripture. I'm going to read a few scriptures here. Isaiah 46 and 9. It reads, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I'm going go to go to Deuteronomy 4 and 9. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Psalms 143.5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. Psalms 9 and 9, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Now, what I've just read to you is a small sample out of a big uh, litany of scriptures that speak to 
this command that God tells us to remember, to never forget. If you remember that sermon that I preached some months ago, there is this huge emphasis on history, protecting it and preserving it, that we see in the Bible, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I love that about the Bible. It, it's, it, it, it seeks to be transparent about our humanity. It's one of the reasons I believe in it so much, because it doesn't put extra sauce and romanticize things where it uh, doesn't need to be. We see these many commands in the Bible that says, remember, don't forget. Um, not just the Lord's goodness, but the reality. Um, and we, we see in books like Samuel and Kings, this great intentionality around recording history. There's royal historians designated by King Solomon and King David. If you read it, when they die, their, their names go into the books. Like there's this big effort around history. And so this is telling us something. And we have to pay attention to it. And the older I get, I begin to, I see why. I see why history is so important to us. And why it's important to, to, to know it, to understand it. Because here we are all products of history. When you come through that door, the way you walk, the clothes you got on, your mannerisms, your, your fidgeting comes from your parents or generations that you may not even be aware of. History is written all over you. Whether you understand it or I understand it, it's all over you. And history also is written all over your perspective, how you see things, what you expect to hear from the pulpit, your ideas, your views. And history is written all over me, right? Today, how I stand before you, um, I am a descendant of a people that's been enslaved. Those markings are all over me. They are marked on my name. My first name is Donald, given to me by my parents. My last name is Cogdell. That's a French name that is not African. I am not French, right? That, that points to something that happened to me and my family in the past. And it's very difficult to trace my lineage back to my home. I have to pay DNA costs and fees and such. Thank, thank shout outs to capitalism. But either or, um, I have to pay for that, right? And also my family by, by large is still in poverty from those days. Um, this is, history is so important because it informs us of our place, who we are, how we see things in our paths. And it is, I love it because it helps us not, because we like to see the world through our own eyes and assume everybody's experience is like ours. But it's not. And history is a stark reminder of that for us when we understand it and know it. And... Um, and so it's important to know our history. And what does the saying goes? If you don't remember, you're doomed to repeat it, right? For paraphrasing it, right? And, but there's also another saying that says history is written by the victors. Some say it's Winston Churchill that said it, but it's really unknown. 
But there's some insight to history being written by the victors because there is, it informs us that history can be shaped by those people that have power, those people that win wars, empires, kingdoms, and there's may not be a full transparency on what happened. And so history can be suppressed, manipulated. And so the question begs, if we're to remember uh, our past so we don't repeat it, how can you remember something that may not be fully told to you? And so there's the African-American history and our rich heritage and Christianity has been botched so much that there are, we struggle from identity crisis within the community. And they're also outside of the community, there may be a subconscious lesser view because people are not seeing the full story. And so I want to share that story today. I want to tell the forgotten story, a legacy of Christ and black history. And so where do we start with this story? Where does the narrative begin? I find that too often when we talk about uh, African-Americans or black people and Christianity, too often that narrative starts in slavery. It starts in the Atlantic slave trade. But the truth is, um, it goes way beyond that. Unfortunately, the cultural prevailing message is that Europeans introduced to Christians uh, introduced Africans to Christianity. That's kind of like the prevailing message. And when you look at our news, when you look at our movies, Hollywood, the commentators, the art and statues of a white Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes that sprawled across this nation and world, you can tend to think that Christianity is, quote unquote, the white man's religion. And many people are defecting from the faith, people in, in my community, because they say, oh, that's, that's the oppressor's religion. How could you worship a God that enslaved you and forced you to worship him? But now I understand, and I used to have those same questions, but when you understand history and, trans, and its transparency, you would see and know that Christianity was actually in Africa before it was in Europe. And so, and the Bible played out on the Afro-Asiatic context, which mean Af mainly Africa and Asia. We see the African nations mentioned in the Bible thousands of times, but it may not go by Africa, it goes by Kush, Ethiopia, Right. Um, there's different words that we may not necessarily correlate to that, but we see Africans present in Genesis all the way to Revelations. Moses's wife was black, was a black woman. Right. We see that um, Zephaniah, the prophet, was a black man. One in one, it says he was a son of a Cushite. Son of Solomon, one in five. Uh, shows that King Solomon's romantic pursuit in that love book was a black woman. How important is that to know for our black women that may struggle with a culture that says they're not beautiful? Right? African nations like Ethiopia, Kush, Egypt, they're mentioned 
a bunch of times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so these figures that we see in movies, Abraham, Moses, David, they were not European men, sorry. <laughs> they were more closer to my skin complexion than what we see in the movies. And there, there were some decent movies. I, I like the Moses movie, right? <laughs> but it's not accurate. And for somebody, for youth teachers like us who teach and try to show the account of Jesus, it's very hard to find brown Jesus in text and animation, all the things that help children and us understand the Bible. It's hard to find that, right? And so this is the reality. So <clears throat> the Bible and where it, was, where it came out of was a diverse, multi-ethnic, beautiful ethnicity makeup of people of color, right? And Europeans were involved, but everybody was involved. But if you look at our media and our news, you would just think, oh, we came along for the ride later on and we were forced to believe that. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. The, the, the European missionaries didn't bring the gospel to Africa. <clears throat> the gospel was already there. I'll show you. We see, it, we see Africans right at the center of the gospel, Luke 23 and 26. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, Simon from Cyrene, where is Cyrene? Cyrene is modern-day Libya which is in Africa, which means he was a African man. He was a black man. And so also, here's trivia. <laughs> Did you know that Mark the gospel writer is from Cyrene, which is Africa? So we see an African presence involved right there where Jesus is carrying a cross to redeem us and all mankind. He is present, an African is present. <clears throat> and we see an African present in writing the gospel. How would this impact us if we knew this information? <clears throat> Let's keep going. Acts 8, 36 through 39. <clears throat> you might be familiar with this story. <clears throat> As they traveled along the road, and I'm coming in on the end of it. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look here, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip, <clears throat> a disciple of Jesus, and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Let me give some context. This is Philip, and earlier in the context, in the scripture, again, I jumped in on the end, but it, the Bible says this is an Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopia, that is in Africa. Eunuch, that is a court official. And he was, a, he was royalty. He was riding in the chariot, being driven in the chariot. He wasn't driving the chariot. 
And what else was he doing? He was reading Isaiah. So right here in this text, the honesty of this history is breaking down stereotypes already about blackness and education and royalty. Right. And so we see this exchange. He's reading Isaiah, which is one of our favorite books that talks about seeking justice and defending the oppressed. But he's reading and he's not fully understanding. And the Holy Spirit guides Philip to him to teach him and connect the dots that's missing for him. And they have this exchange and he connects the dots and he's like, well, what's stopping me from being baptized? There's water right here. And they get out the chariot and he baptizes him. It's a beautiful story. But the story doesn't really stop there. He says he went away rejoicing. And other evidence shows this man went back home and brought the gospel to Ethiopia, which in turn created one of the oldest standing churches in the world. And this is in the first century, (laughs) way before the the Atlantic slave trade. Martin Luther says that this and writers say this is he's considered the first recorded Gentile that was baptized. And so we see Africans present in the redemptive work of Jesus. We see Africans present in the commission that Jesus had sending people out. And so it's such a beautiful thing. And and, and I love Ethiopia. It's one of the only African nations that hasn't been colonized. So it's like really like Wakanda. right? <laughs> Wakanda has not been colonized. Rich tradition and culture. Um, John Mbiti, he is considered the African uh, father of African theology. He says this. Christianity, Christianity in Africa is so old that it can be rightly described as an indigenous, traditional and African religion. This is in stark contrast to what I kind of believe growing up or was told that us Africans were dancing around a fire in, in, in the wild Africa and we had to be saved. Now, again, the Bible is full of rich diversity and people of color and mixed relationships. And racism is really kind of new on the scale of history. Not prejudice. Prejudice has been around for a long time. Tribes and all of that. (laughs) But racism, meaning somebody is devalued because their skin color or seen not as human because they're their skin color. And so it's so deep. I can take you to so many different stories that point to African presence in the Bible. Even Paul in Acts 21 was confused to be an Egyptian revolutionary. So, I mean, you can look that up. We're not, we're not going to go there today. But it's, it's deep. And it's important that people see themselves in the narrative involved because God brings everybody into the narrative. We are, we are a part of salvation history. Africans are part of that. And there's, we, we just don't sing and dance and bring entertainment, but there's intellectual property In the early African Christian church, there were great leaders that we see that was extremely important. Let me get my notes right here. 
extremely important after Jesus rose. I talked about um, the gospel being in Ethiopia and East Africa, and, and it also boomed in North Africa. And also there's uh, evidence of Christian kingdoms in West Africa where kind of like the slave trade was tapped into. Um, but this needs to be understood that there was intellectual property, that Africa was also a seabed, a garden that shaped Christianity as well. You've heard of names like uh, Luther and Calvin, Wesley. They came in the 16th century and they're considered church fathers. But people like Tertullian, who helped shape and develop the concept around the Trinity, was in the first century. People like Origen, who, who developed exegesis and showed us how to analyze and interpret scripture, was in the first century. People like Athanasius, who defended the divinity of Christ and helped prompt the Council of Nicaea, battling Arminianism, right? He, he was there early, first 700 years after Jesus left. They were Africans in North Africa. People like uh, Perpetua and Felicity, they were two strong sisters that were martyrs denied by their family because they would not give up their faith. They faced down lions, and their story is told. And Perpetua is what some scholars believe to be the first woman author, Christian author. And so she has a journal. She talked about it, and then as she gave her life, her friend finished her journal, her story about what happened. And so you see how this just kind of opens up another perspective for you and for me and brings restoration to some of the lies of racism and white supremacy, which is an ideology. I always have to say white supremacy is an ideology. Anybody can be a white supremacist if they believe that European or Caucasians are superior. Right. And so these things come against. And did we also know that Alexandria in Egypt, the first university came first higher institution of research and education right there in Alexandria was there. And so these are things that that need to be broadcasted, broadcasted a little bit more for people to understand where they come from and that they have rich heritage. And this does all of us great justice. And so now that we've kind of established that Christianity was around before the slave trade, let's talk about, okay, what did Christianity look like for Africans during the slave trade? If you're like me early on, I sort of believed that Africans were forced to be Christians, that they were beat into submission like uh, Kunta Kinte, and that they were just forced to believe this. When we look at the history of it, actually, and we look at the slave accounts, actual slave accounts, and the actual data, that was really not the case. In the beginning, um, slaveholders did not really want Africans to be Christians. They did not want them to participate in baptisms or any spiritual event. One, part of the reason is they didn't believe Negroes had souls or there was twisted theology around the curse of, 
curse of Ham and believe Negroes were cursed. Uh, and the, also, there was thoughts that if we make them Christians, they're going to start thinking more of themselves and want freedom and liberty, which was a huge reason. And so, but we, we see, so that wasn't the case. That later emerged, it became okay and acceptable. Denominations had fight about fights and debates about, you know, Africans being Christians and the Methodist uh, denomination was huge and Baptist denomination was huge and allowing. So, so when you, so there was two extremes that emerged really, right? So one side that allowed Africans to participate in Christianity have marriages, baptisms, funerals. And then there was another side where you can see it in the actual slave accounts that Africans were beat for singing and praying. It could be the next plantation over. And so there was a mixed bag and confrontation around this, and which keep led on to a drum being beaten about the debate of sin and slavery and whether America should continue in this process. And so, so that was the reality. It wasn't beaten into Africans. Actually, the reality is that many Africans took initiative on their own to worship God. And the reality is that some Africans were, like I said, were already Christians on their, on their way through the passage before they were taken into slavery. And there's documents that show they were pleading their case because they were Christians that they shouldn't be slaves and their cases were denied. So they were, they were Christians, they were Muslims, they were Africans that believed in different African religions. It was a mixed bag. But this is often not taught, right? And so it, it was so real that they were so serious about their love for Jesus and their love for prayer that they would initiate secret prayer gatherings away from where they couldn't be seen and they would call these hush harbors and they would gather around a circle and they would put water like a bowl of water to try to drown out drown out the sound so it doesn't so they don't get caught because they could be punished for gathering away this was happening there was also i don't know if you know there was also a slave bible where they audited passages from Exodus and the Bible that spoke to liberation. So that was happening. But Africans, my ancestors were aware of that. They were aware that there was a difference between the sermons that were just being preached, obey your, serve, obey your masters. Um, I'm going to show you the difference. Frederick Douglass, huge figure in this time, he says this. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, women whipping, cradle plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of the land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. You see, there was a distinction. They knew this is not the Christianity that comes from the Bible. 
And Frederick Douglass, he taught himself how to read and escape slavery and became one of the greatest orators in our history. Went on to have conversations with Abraham Lincoln and many people. And he was probably one of the, the most well-known black figures in that day, next to Harriet Tubman. And so they saw there is a difference. And so while slaveholders used the Bible as a tool for slavery, it was also used as a tool for liberation and freedom. You see, God would not allow his word to be mocked, to be lied upon. His Holy Spirit crushed through all those barriers. And what was happening and what I love about this fight is that these abolitionists, and there was white abolitionists as well, African abolitionists, they were challenging whether this nation was really a Christian nation based on this sin. And so in a sense, they are actually helping the nation move forward in true Christianity by placing away this sin, dealing with this. And so that's a part of the story that's important to know that there was agency and autonomy in these people. There was perseverance in these people despite all the obstacles. Because, and, and, and it can only be God, it can only be his word that is restorative, that allows a group to seek justice and not revenge, to defend the oppressed, to restore and not to destroy. Because, you know, I'm gonna be honest, if I experience some of those atrocities that our people felt without God, I wanna burn it down between the raping, between the, uh, 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 you know, uh, auctions and families being split and just the inhumane treatment. That is, that is nothing short of God's presence and spirit and his word used that what they saw what happened in Exodus. They saw their story in the Exodus story. They saw there is a God that loves the oppressed and talked about justice and not being mistreated. And so a lot of the leaders of that time, like your Sojourner Truth, your Harriet Tubman, your Frederick Douglass, your, your Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, who were the first, did the first AME Methodist Church in Philly. They were Christians and they used God's word and tools as liberation. And I'm not saying that there weren't other belief systems that were leading, but I, but I am saying that the Christian narrative and the Christian message and force did take front hold. And so they persevered. They, they taught. They went back into the South and took slaves out. They built churches. They, they wrote articles and wrote books. You can, you can find, you know, people that were born into slavery who were written books Frederick Douglass, it says, written by himself. <laughs> Booker T. Washington, it says, written by himself, right? These are people that rebelled against a system that said they are not human. And they did it in a godly way. And so, and, and I'm not saying everything was perfect and it was, there was brokenness and messiness, but they helped start a, this, this country was in a very fixed place with slavery and very comfortable. And so it came to a space where there had to be a civil war to end this debate. And so 
these Christians played a big part in this. And these Christians paved the way and laid the foundation for the other Christian leaders to rise up like Martin Luther King, like uh, Rosa Parks, like Ralph Abernathy, like Thurgood Marshall in the Civil Rights Movement during the Jim Crow era. Like, I used to read a lot of Martin Luther King, still do, but once I understood the narrative of Frederick Douglass and his account, I understand what kind of helped influence Martin Luther King. A lot of influence there and other great writers. And so God, which, which was influenced by the prophets in the Bible and God's rich history. You see how it's all connected. This is extremely important. I know people defecting from the faith because they believe that this was the white man's religion and this Jesus is not for us. They just don't know the full history, unfortunately. Right? So this helps us to understand our story and, and dig into how God moved and how he moves through history, through broken people like me and you. Things like slavery was a fixture in society. It was like a couch. It wasn't moving. People, there was a day that thought this would never, this will always be a part of it because how much money it was coming in. But there were a few believers that believed this could change. And so the question is, will you be of one of the few believers in your space to believe that God can bring restoration and shalom in your space? It's important to understand that we serve a God who identifies himself as the refuge for the oppressed, that he is a stronghold in times of trouble. This is our God. Now, in this message, I'm not trying to shame or guilt trip anybody. Um, Oftentimes we see these conversations and we suppress them because they feel that they bring up things. But I like what Martin Luther King says. He says, when you suppress it, it's like a wound that you cover. It begins to fester, begins to bring infection, all these different things. But when you allow that wound to see the light, then there is healing, then there is truth. Can we be a people that are transparent with each other because we are a family and we all have different stories that we bring to the table. And all of our ancestors were a part of the redemptive history. Nobody was left out, nobody was excluded. And sometimes I find that we settle for this fake unity where we do not deal with the issues that are there with the perceptions that have that are that the, the that we've been installed in that that have been downloaded in us the stereotypes that's not unity when we don't deal with these things we don't talk about these truths unity is coming to the to the space with our full selves with our full hurt with our full pain and lamenting apologizing, forgiving each other. We see God has had people repay and restore 
um, things to a people that they weren't even a part of. We see that in the Old Testament. And so can we be a people that is so loving to understand one another, to hear each other's stories, to tap into our narratives as the worship team can come forward and love on one another? That's what love is. Love is not just this happy, passive, let's get along. No, love is let's deal with the good, bad, and ugly, and let's hold on to each other. Lastly, Revelation 7 and 9. It reads, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one would count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. This is the eschaton, which means the end. And here we see every nation, tribe, people, and language. I love how the Bible does not take away our ethnicity. It does not take away our language. It does not take away our tribe. But it invites all of that because that diversity makes for it, it embodies God's Imago Day upon us. We don't live in a colorless doctrine, right? God doesn't, God made us this way, which means it's a part of him. And so, yes, salvation is for everybody. And I know there, there's the scripture that says there is no Jew, no Greek, right? No, no slave or barbarian. That is speaking to the salvation of our souls. But here we see in context, God doesn't strip away who we are. So ethnicity does matter. Can you dive into your story and see God's glory in your story and your ancestor's story and let yourself be encouraged and restored? And can you dive into your history and see the wounds and allow God to heal you of the trauma? You see, we honor God by honoring each other, the Imago Dei upon each other, by facing our implicit bias. We all have them. I even have some stereotypes of my own, of my own people. We have to deal with these things and allow our view to be filtered by God's truth. Let us pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy and your truth to heal and to make us whole. We are a broken people. We forget you at times. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would heal us, that you would restore us again, that you would help us to deal with the hard things as family deals with them together in love and lament in truth and honesty and joy without the skepticism, without the criticism, Lord God. God, heal us of the racial trauma and baggage that we all carry because of the fallen nature of this world. But help us be a people that redeem and restore in our perspective spaces. Help us to be peacemakers. Help us to be justice seekers. Help us to be truth tailors. Help us to do that all in love. And you said in your word, John 13, 35, they will know you 
they will know that we are yours by by love. And so, Lord God, I just thank you for this family here that will build upon this family in Astoria and Queens and wherever we go, knowing our history in you and allowing you to shape our future. I thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, if you would like prayer, the prayer team is in the back. Let's just go before God and bring our full selves to him talk to him and share anything that may have been triggered in you during this message let's give it to God let's worship him let's behold him as we worship one more time in Jesus name